Can the greatest enemy of the gospel really be saved? That's the question we're discussing today on the Hero of the Story presented by The Gospel Project. Thanks for joining us for today's episode of The Hero of the Story, a podcast to help you explore the big story and big truths of Scripture. I'm Aaron Armstrong, and with me, as always, is Brian Dembozik. So, Brian, today we are continuing on in the book of Acts, and we are hitting one of the exciting but um, sometimes misunderstood passages um, in certain elements um, that uh, that people can sometimes read in. We are looking at Acts chapter 9, verses 3 through 20. And this, of course, is the conversion of Paul slash Saul. Yes, it is. And uh, this is one of, I think, three times that this is recorded in the book of Acts, um, at least twice. Mm-hmm. I think there's a third time. Um, but of course, this is the, the first time it occurs. And uh, as you said, one of the issues we'll talk about in a minute is the Saul slash Paul controversy, which is not really a controversy. Um, but let me kind of set the stage as we look into this, such a critical passage. And we've been saying this, if you are listening and been listening to several episodes in a row, we keep saying this because this middle section of Acts is so pivotal, so many key transitions happening. And this is a huge one, of course, uh, Paul coming to faith in Christ. So we got to remember the blueprint. In order to understand where we are, we have to look back at Acts 1-8 again, just real quick. Jesus said that the gospel would expand starting in Jerusalem, then go to Judea, Samaria, the ends of the world. We have seen that progressing again with Stephen's martyrdom. It scattered the church, pushed the church out, advanced the gospel. Good came from that really difficult thing. We've seen Philip's evangelism of the Samaritans, the Ethiopian. Last episode, we talked about that. So we get these hints of the gospel going forth. But really, we're still kind of in that second and third stage. We're not really all the way into the fourth stage yet. It still feels contained more to the area around Judea until this and what follows because of this. And of course, we're seeing Paul come to faith. Paul would become this giant in the terms of missions, in terms of expanding the church into the ends of the world, even by that context, though, it's the known world at that time around Jerusalem proper. Um, but getting uh, the the gospel going deeper into parts of Asia, into Europe even, we Paul wouldn't do this, but we also know the, the gospel continued going into Africa. And actually, mm-hmm. uh, I think this is a good time just to kind of make sure this is clear. Africa is a key key part of the start of the church. It's often overlooked, but mm-hmm. you think Africa played such a significant role. Many, if not most of the early theologians were housed in Africa. So past this, beyond this, um, but as we see the expansion of the church and we just, again, when we think about going to the world, I don't want us to miss that. It's often misunderstood. A lot of people don't understand the critical role Africa has played in the kingdom of, of Christ expanding. Yeah. Yeah. And so let's let's do what we always do when we have a short passage. Let's read that. So I'm going to read the first 20 verses of Acts chapter 9. All right. And this, again, is from the CSB. So now Saul was still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord. 
he went to the high priest and he and requested letters from him to the synagogues in Damascus so that if he found any men or women who belonged to the way, he might bring them as prisoners to Jerusalem. As he traveled and was nearing Damascus, a light from heaven suddenly flashed around him. Falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Who are you, Lord? Saul said. I am Jesus, the one you are persecuting, he replied. But get up and go into the city and you will be told what you must do. The men who were traveling with him stood speechless, hearing the sound, but seeing no one. Saul got up from the ground, and though his eyes were open, he could see nothing. So they took him by the hand and led him into Damascus, and he was unable to see for three days and did not eat or drink. There was a disciple in Damascus named Ananias, who was not the Ananias who died, um, by the way. Uh, and the Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias, here I am, Lord, he replied. Get up and go to the street called Straight, the Lord said to him, to the house of, the, of Judas, and ask for a man from Tarsus named Saul, since he is praying there. In a vision, he has seen a man named Ananias coming in and placing his hands on him so that he may regain his sight. Lord, Ananias answered, I have heard from many people about this man, about how much harm he has done to your saints in Jerusalem, and he has authority here from the chief priests to arrest all who call on your name. But the Lord said to him, Go, for this man is my chosen instrument to take my name to Gentiles, kings, and Israelites. I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. Ananias went and entered the house. He placed his hands on him and said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on the road uh, you are traveling, he has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. At once, something like scales fell from his eyes, and he regained his sight, and he then he got up and was baptized, and after taking some food, he regained his strength. Saul was with the disciples in Damascus for some time, and immediately he began proclaiming Jesus in the synagogue. He is the Son of God. So, there's a ton there. And we see we see some, some pieces that are part of a pattern of behavior uh, that... Uh, that that happens in in the scriptures. So, for example, people people hear, they believe, they're baptized, and they go and tell more people. Um, that is that's kind of a big deal. It's kind of an important model for us to follow. Absolutely, absolutely. What kind of questions should we be asking of this passage? I, I think the first. Uh, I'm going to do first two questions together because they both kind of deal with what Paul was doing at the beginning of this. So the first one, why was Paul so hostile toward the church? We see this in verses one and two. I mean, that, that expression, he's breathing threats and so forth. He, I mean, he was adamant about persecuting and chasing down the church. Why? Well, we have to understand he was doing what he thought was right. Uh, he was not right, of course, but he thought he was. He was a faithful Jew. 
and he was jealous of protecting Judaism against this perceived threat of polytheism, again, perceived polytheism, when this church is proclaiming Jesus is God, and these Jews, like Paul, would say, wait a minute, no, there's one God. You are presenting a second God, not understanding the doctrine of the Trinity, of course. Um, and so in, in defending the Jewish faith, Paul is adamant to chase down the church and persecute and stamp out uh, what he perceived as heresy uh, in front of him. So we gotta we have to give him the benefit of the doubt some that he he was he had in his mind his heart noble reasons he just didn't understand the truth. So that takes us to the second when when we have this encounter, Jesus says to Paul, "Why are you persecuting me?" He says it twice in verses four and six. How was Paul persecuting Jesus? I thought he was persecuting Christians. And the answer is yes and yes. Because Paul was persecuting the bride of Christ, it it was as if he was persecuting Jesus directly. And this really couples with our unity in Christ. Christ is in us. Uh, We're going to be talking about this a lot in an Essential Doctrine episode, where we really have to understand Mm -hmm. unity with Christ. What happens to the church it makes sense that Christ would say, you're doing that to me directly. We, we, we serve for Christ, for his fame, advancing him. We bear Christ to the watching world. So this deep connection is, is what Jesus is emphasizing. You're hurting my people. They're my bride. You're hurting me. And so that's what's going on here. And of course, that's why Jesus intercedes on this road and says, wait a minute, we have to have a little talk, Paul. So another question that we've got here that we have to address is uh, verse 5. It comes from verse 5. And there, when when Paul hears his name or Saul hears his name, he says, says, Lord. And so when he refers, when he calls Jesus Lord here, is this Paul acknowledging the lordship of Jesus in this passage? And the answer is probably not. Though the word Lord can me can be used to refer to God and, and often is in the scriptures. Um, however, it's also one that can basically be be one that is um um, a respectful tone. Um, so in a non-te- non-technical sense, it's saying, sir. Um, and and that, that could well be the meaning that is in mind here. However, even if Paul is using it in that sense that it's associated with divinity, he would only be doing that because Jesus is speaking directly from a bright light from heaven. And so he's been given and he's been given unmistakable evidence um, yeah. here that uh, that he had that he's being confronted by God himself. And so uh, so if he is using it that way, that's why. But um, another question that comes out is 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 because as a result of this, he was blinded. And but why? Why was he blinded? Well, ultimately, it was because this was an example of God humbling the proud, humiliating the proud even, if you really want to go a little step further, because Paul was helpless after this. He could not see a thing. He could not get where he was going. 
his, the men who were with him had to help him get to this house on Straight Street where he was to wait. And so Paul's physical blindness is really a, a metaphor and a manifestation, ultimately, of his own spiritual blindness. And that picks up when, um, when he professes faith and these things that are like scales fall off of his eyes and then he can see. And, um, you know, and I have to, have to think that uh, John Newton, when he was writing Amazing Grace, that he had this encounter yeah. that, that Paul had with Jesus in mind when he wrote these line, the, that line, um, I once was blind, but now, but, but now I see. And, um, and, and that is such a perfect picture of our spiritual blindness that, that all of us walk in darkness without, when we, when we do not acknowledge the Lordship and the deity of Christ, when we are, when we live apart from the gospel, but when we can see but faith is what makes us see, and it's incredible. Yeah, and that 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 image and and the reality, a, a literal blindness, is used in scripture so often to point toward that metaphorical as you're describing. Um, the next question is: is we let's circle back around and think of Ananias for a minute. Why did God set up this appointment with Ananias? Why why did God go to Ananias and and arrange for him to go to to Paul? Uh, to remove the blindness. And it really seems that there's a practical reason here. If we think about this for a minute, what what God is doing here is he's helping in his kindness. He's helping to establish a safe connection between Paul and the church that Paul was seeking to destroy. And the church knew this. Look at how Ananias responds. Wait a minute, God, you want me to go to Paul? Don't you know who he is? He's been, you know, he's been killing people in the church. He's been chasing after us. Um, and to Ananias's credit, he, he's obedient. But think about it this way. What if Paul, and God could have chosen to do this, he can do anything he wants as long as it is not in violation of his character or revealed plan. So God could have arranged for Paul simply to sit in you know darkness for three days and then the blindness be removed. And Paul then could have found the church and said, hey guys, guess what happened to me? How do you think the church would have responded when they saw Paul walking up the sidewalk? They would have ran um, had they not been able to run. And Paul said this, they would have been like, no, this is a trap. Get your best Admiral Akbar impersonation right there going in your mind. Um, they would have said, wait a minute. No, there's no way. Uh, you're Paul. This is, you're up to no good. But when Ananias was able to bring Paul and say, this is Paul, <laughs> let's tell you what happened. That helped enable the church to welcome Paul in. So it seems like there's really beautiful practical reasons, which are it's really encouraging uh, to think God does the same for us. He He will bring things to pass, understanding where we are, and help us along the way, help us move forward to where we need to be. The other thing that I want to draw attention in this section of the story is what God says to to Ananias when he when Ananias is kind of pushed back gently, it seems. And God says, no, this is, this is what part of my plan. And then God says in verse 16, and, and I'm going to show him how much he has to suffer. Is it really part of God's plan for somebody to suffer? Is it really part of God's good plan for Paul to suffer in this case? And by extension, how about us? 
And the answer is an unqualified yes. It can be part of God's good plan. It often is, as we see here, as we see it with Christ himself. We tend to equate suffering as something that's completely bad. But in God's economy, it is not always. It can be used for good. It often is used for good. And we see this in Paul's ministry. We, as we track along with Paul, we're going to be doing this in the next several episodes coming up. But even that, we're not going to go into the depth that if, if you read more scripture on your own, you will see that Paul suffered a great deal. He wrote about the times he was shipwrecked and beaten and hungry and on his own and so forth. But all that suffering was used to advance the gospel. And the thing about it that we really have to appreciate about Paul is he welcomed that suffering. Did he seek it out? No. But he welcomed it because he recognized that all that suffering had a purpose. God was using it. He was taking and making beauty from ashes. And we need to understand that as well, that suffering can be a beautiful thing. Does it mean it's not hard? Of course it's hard, but there's purpose in it, and and that's a good thing. Absolutely. Now I'm going to handle the the kind of the last three questions that uh, that we're going to talk through today um, in more or less one chunk. So since you did the first couple like that, Brian, I'm I'm stealing your thunder and doing the that works. The final ones. All right, but uh, I got a two part one here for you, um, which is first, when did when did Paul trust in Jesus? And second, uh, is this when Saul became Paul? And so to answer the first part, well, um, he was filled. We, we know that he was filled with the Spirit in verse 17. We know that he was va- baptized in verse 18. Um, we don't actually have the recorded moment when he says, Jesus, I believe you're the Son of God. But we can assume some things based on, based on everything that's there. At some point between the time that he was stopped on the road and the time that Ananias showed up, he believed at some point in that, that time period. So we can assume that, that Paul trusted in Christ as he sat in the darkness, probably before, maybe he was a little bit sooner than that. But I mean, we have to be flexible here. We don't know every detail. We just don't. And we have to be okay with that. We've got to live in that tension. That's also part of good storytelling too, is, is some, some things are just left to your imagination, which is why Luke is a good storyteller. <laughs> so he doesn't have to give you all But how details. will I know when to start calling that him Paul would... then? Um, well, you can do that whenever you want because he was always both. So there is this little thing there is this this thing that we that a little preacher trick uh, here that is really cute and it's rhetorically very clever, but it's a parallel that doesn't exist in scripture. And so there's there's often this parallel that's made between uh, Abraham becoming or Abram becoming Abraham and Jacob becoming Israel um, and Saul becoming Paul. And it's like, well, except for that last one, that's fudging because he was always he really was always both. Saul was his Jewish name. Paul was his Roman or Gentile name. It was both. It was always both. So that is, uh, that's really, really important. So 
Um, you know, any t- if you see that come up in a small group sometime, you can do some gentle finger wagging and, <laughs> um, and say no thank you. So to be clear, Saul was not his Jewish name and Paul his Christian name. He didn't become Paul. He's always been. And he's called Saul no. after this. No, so, gosh, yeah. Yeah. Absolutely he is. And it's just as the story progresses and it's and it's really more as he goes into the exactly to the gentile world that we see the name paul more or less exclusively take over his writing so that's what we need uh the writing in uh in acts so the last question here is one that's actually really near and dear to my heart um which is this, it's related to verse 20, because we see that, that Paul was with the disciples in Damascus for many days and that he was in the synagogue proclaiming that Jesus is the son of God. So here's the question. Was Paul doing that acting as a pastor? And if so, was he not violating the, the, the very same warning and restriction that he himself gave later to not place new converts in pastoral positions or positions of leadership. So here's, here's the answer. You ready for this? I'm ready. No, no, he was not doing that. He was not violating a prohibition that he would later give through the, or that the spirit would give through him. He wasn't being a pastor in this in this situation. Was, this was evangelism. This was worship as well. When he's in there proclaiming that Jesus is the, is the Son of God, he's telling people Jesus is the Son of God. And we are all called to evangelize from day one. That's the thing that we need to take away from this. Not that, hey, brand new, brand new convert, go be a pastor now. It's, hey, brand new convert... Tell people about Jesus. Yeah. And so Paul would experience, um, Paul, and that, that phrase, many days there, is really, really important, too. Because that meant that Paul was going to be there. He was being discipled. He was being trained. Um, and this was, that, this was that interim time between, uh, between the start uh, between his conversion and the start of his proper ministry in terms of his formal commissioning to go out as an apostle um, and 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 that's what we what we need to remember yeah. is is that maturity and and evangelism are not contingent upon one another an immature believer is just as capable and is just as expected to go and and tell people about the gospel and tell people about what Jesus has done both in their lives and can do in their lives as the most seasoned and established and mature Christian that exists. We all are on that mission. None of us are excluded from it. You don't have to wait until you're a certain time uh, or have been in the faith a certain number of years or have a certain number of verses memorized or anything like that. We preach Christ from the moment that we are saved until the moment we meet him. So that takes us to, um, to our final, um, 
final segment in our conversation, which is talking about this from a discipleship perspective. So what kind of encouragement can we give to our listeners in this area? I think the first one is for us, because not only are we discipling, and again, that's who we're usually talking to in this last kind of, uh, this last part is think about the people you're discipling. Um, but beyond that, we, we also are to be evangelizing. But then also as we're discipling, as you were just talking about, Aaron, you know, we're, we're discipling maybe some new believers and they are to evangelize as well. And so it relates in both ways. But it's this idea of we need to find encouragement here, or we can find encouragement here, that no one is beyond salvation. Uh, no one's beyond being used by God. You think about who Paul was and what he did before trusting in Christ. And, you know, you let off the episode with kind of that question, you know, is, is even the, the greatest enemy of God beyond salvation? And of course, the answer is no, no one is. Uh, grace is available for all. And you think about what Paul wrote later in 1 Timothy 1.15, and he, he says, this is a trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance, the saying he's about to give. And here it is, Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, and I am the worst of them. Now, that first part clearly is a saying, Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. The question is, was that latter part, I am the worst of them, part of a saying? And was Paul merely repeating that? Or was that something Paul added? Either way, his point is this whole idea is important. And I believe Paul would affirm it with all of his heart that he believed, Paul himself believed he was the worst among sinners. And why would he do that? Because he would say, I persecuted the church. Can it get worse than that? I persecuted Christ. Can it get any worse than that? So here, I think Paul, he, this is not hyperbole. I believe he really believed that. And so I think part of what we need to remember for ourselves as we are evangelizing and what we need to help people who are discipling when they evangelize is not to categorize people and dismiss some people because they're too far gone. You know, no, there's no way. Maybe some people are more difficult, of course, because of hardness of heart, but we proclaim Jesus no matter what to them. We share the gospel no matter what, praying and even anticipating, not expecting, but anticipating God to work and bring to salvation some people that we would never have guessed it. And beyond that, to be able to consider one day God might be as kind to use this person who we would consider the most wretched among sinners and could be proclaiming the gospel and doing amazing things like Paul. Yeah. And through this as well, we are once again reminded to live a radically obedient faith in Jesus. And this is this is really highlighted by the response of Ananias in this text. And again, it bears repeating. This is not the same with Ananias who was killed for lying. Um, because, well, that would be really weird. (laughs) It would be. (laughs) So, um, but I mean, you think about his, you think about what he's told. He's told to go and go and see the man who has come to Jerusalem or from Jerusalem to Damascus to arrest him. And to, and to tell him and to proclaim the gospel to him and to pray over him. And uh, that's, that's, that's kind of a big deal. Um, that's, that's, that's a prop. That's challenging. 
Um, you know, you can think about whatever you can insert whoever's whoever's name that uh, would be a big concern for you in there in in that kind of situation. And imagine God telling you to go do that. That's what it would be like. He did it. That is incredible. That is a that is a radical kind of obedience that we need to recapture in our own lives. So how much so where are those things where God has um, where where we are out of step with the gospel, where we play it safe for the sake of our comfort or our safety or our convenience in some cases, but where we might have the greatest opportunity to further the mission of the king of the gospel if we if we take that step and it doesn't end now before we before i let you finish this this up real quick brian one of the things that we we need to be careful of with words like radical um this does not mean the you know this this can mean a lot of things it doesn't necessarily mean um how we might think it does in terms of, you know, what is the most extravagant and weird and wild and crazy thing possible. Radical obedience can mean going across the street from your house, whether, whether we're in, in a COVID time or a not COVID time or anything else, um, knocking on the door and starting a, and starting to get your note to know your neighbors. That's a start. Um, it can um, it can and especially if you have a neighbor who you know does not live a lifestyle that um, conforms with the Christian faith. So think if you if you have a neighbor who is in a same-sex relationship, if you have a Muslim neighbor, start by getting to know them. Yeah, having dinner with them is the radical we're talking about. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. That that might sound that might sound silly, and hopefully you're already exactly. doing that kind of thing. But but in the current polarized climate that we exist in, sometimes the most radical thing you can do is to be kind to someone else. Yeah. I think, um, Aaron, that kind of takes us to this last point of takeaway that I would encourage us because what you're talking about is what we would call the long play, for lack of a better word. It's, you know, some people would say, well, the most radical thing is you knock on that door and you go on a, a gospel diatribe. Um, and there may be a place, for, well, not a gospel diatribe, but a, <laughs> there may be a place to have a more overt, hey, let me, let me tell you about the gospel. But a lot of times we're looking at a longer play of saying, let me, let me just, show care. Let me, let me love this person. Let me treat this person with respect as an image bearer of God. Um, and in time, get to the point of sharing the gospel. And again, we would not say it's sufficient just to have that person over for dinner and say, I've evangelized them. No, the, 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 the gospel has got to be proclaimed, but it could be a long 
time frame. And the same thing, as we're discipling people, I think we have to keep this long perspective of discipleship in mind. Um, it goes back to evangelizing and not uh, ruling anybody out, that God can do amazing things through anybody, bring anybody to the faith and grow them. And as we're discipling, we need to keep that long that long play in mind. We want to see shorter-term growth, of course, but we may disciple somebody for years and not really start to see what God is planning to do through them. It may be more years after that. And you know, I, I think, Aaron, I, I started my ministry in student ministry um, years ago, and we saw fruit in that window of time. But what is most rewarding is when I see students of mine, I'm connected with them on Facebook, for example, and I see them doing something. I see them serving. I see God using them today, 20 years later. That's the most rewarding. And I haven't discipled them the whole time, of course, but at least I had a role that God used me in his kindness to some degree. It's that long-term view. It's, it's what might God do with this person years from now decades from now even, and the, the tapestry that God comes and brings to pass of that person's life and the different ways he uses him or her and a different way that person, those who that disciple builds into as well, and just continue that extension. Who knows what God will do? And, it's, and we have to keep that in mind, especially in seasons where we may be discouraged. Discipleship's not going the way we would hope. Those we're discipling maybe not be growing as much. Maybe, you know, if we're, if we're in a class, maybe our class has, is, our attendance is declining or whatever. And those periods of discouragement, we don't want to give in to them. We want to keep in mind that God is doing something amazing, but we may not see it for years, if, if at all on earth. We may not see it until we are in the new heavens and earth and understanding what God was bringing to pass. Man, that's a good place for us to wrap this up on. So, Brian, thanks for talking about this passage today. Um, it's really great to really great to just be reminded of the kindness of God in this and the this long view of discipleship that all comes from uh, looking at the the greatest one of the greatest enemies of the church becoming its greatest advocate. So. Um, thank you. Uh, thank you for chatting and thank you all for listening to today's episode of the podcast. If you enjoyed it, please do leave a sincere five-star rating and review on Apple podcasts or whatever platform you use to listen to the show. And for more resources to help you focus your ministry on the gospel, please visit gospelproject.com.